Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another very special new episode of Ignite Radio Live. Over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio, you are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter, and Greg... You said a new episode. (laughs) You caught that. I did. So those of you who have been walking with us, praying with us, for us. So grateful. So, so grateful as Greg is finally on the other side, praise God, of that awful Wuhan virus that uh, the Lord used to really do a lot. If you want to read my journey, my story, gregorianrant.us, and just kind of scroll down. It's called Corona and the Kingdom. Anyways, we digress. We have a brand new episode tonight, and we're going to air our Belief in Beverages night featuring none other than Hillsdale superstar Professor Nathan Schleter talking about the crisis with citizenship in America. Before we get to that, just to invite you, commercial number one, join us the third Thursday of every month. Absolutely free, great community prayer, and a challenging, good message. It typically takes place at GMC of Perrysburg. So grateful to the Cronins. The next one is going to feature Dean Jeffrey Rogers, who's an outstanding speaker, incredible man of God. We call him the chief from his Navy background, but he's going to address the subject. He's a black man, and so very, all the more relevant and powerful that he's going to address the subject of critical grace theory. So that's coming up November 18th, the Thursday. It will go quick. I'll tell you that. So register free online, massimpact.us forward slash BNB, massimpact.us forward slash BNB. So that's commercial number one. And commercial number two, presentsforchristmas.com. That's P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E for F-O-R christmas.com taking place at holy trinity parish in assumption ohio great thanks to father dan duran and his people out there december 1st december 8th december 15th the first three wednesdays of december beginning at 6 30 each night there'll be witness words confession we're following the first three joyful mysteries of the rosary and kind of th- thematizing it that way um, to enter more deeply into the heart of Christ's mass And the final commercial, I want to speak to, for a moment, parents and grandparents and ask a simple question. Is not our deepest desire that those entrusted to us fully know and encounter Jesus, live for Jesus in the fullness of our Catholic faith? Now, I posted this on Facebook, and it's probably the most viral post I've ever had in a matter of three days. Over 700 people like it, love it, etc., which is amazing. But the big question for you and me is, how can we be united in doing something about it and actually building it? And I know we're speaking to very faithful parents and grandparents here who pray, who are engaged in messaging, forming, encouraging. But we at Mass Impact are all about uniting us in a way of being formed all the more for the kingdom that our kids would choose this and live this. I encourage you to find out more and partner with us at massimpact.us forward slash partner. Massimpact.us forward slash partner. We are praying for 50 new monthly mission partners. There's a two-pager there. We would be very blessed if you would just go there and read the very simple two pages, the tremendous impact it's having on many, and with your help, what we can do to touch so many more. As Pope St. John Paul II said, the future of humanity passes by way of the family. With no further ado, on to our amazing Belief in Beverages night that took place very recently, featuring Dr. Nathan Schleter on the subject, Crisis 
of citizenship in America. Does anybody here looking at the world, reading the paper, watching TV, talking to friends and family, just observing, see that we have a crisis in citizenship? Well, we've got the right guy, I think, to address that tonight and give us some insight all of the Belief and Beverages speakers, and we're getting on a roll here looking into the next year, but this one is particularly special to me. I can say that among brothers. He is number five of six boys, um, and uh, I am the second oldest. And the family of six boys, you, you definitely have a lot of competition, and it is really delightful growing up in a Catholic family where you become iron sharpening iron. We don't agree on everything, but we do on orthodoxy, and within that occasions of refinement. I told them to take the gloves off. We want to be challenged. Which of us don't want to be challenged here? We want to go further and deeper. And so I told him to feel free to address things that maybe those who are faithful Catholics, Christians seeking the kingdom, maybe there's some areas that we need to be challenged in. So whether or not he's going to specifically come with that focus, we need to receive it. So now the biographical good stuff. Nathan is professor of philosophy and religion at Hillsdale College. He directs the pre-law program, also teaches courses in social philosophy, ethical theory, and philosophy and literature. He's a recipient of Hillsdale College's Dory Award for Teaching Excellence and the teacher of the popular online course Introduction to Western Philosophy. He has a BA in history from our alma mater, Jeff, you and me, a few other Miamians here, Miami University of Ohio, 1993, and master's and PhD in politics from the University of Dallas in 1999. Many books, many periodicals, many very impressive works that he has authored that have uh, really have tremendous renown in the community throughout the world. Um, But I'm just going to say his articles have appeared in First Things, Touchstone, Logos, Communio, Public Discourse and Perspectives in Political Science. Nathan has been a fellow of the National Endowment for the Humanities and Princeton University. He is currently working on his next book, Playing with Fire, The Peril and Promise of the Utopian Imagination. Most consequentially of all of these things, his most distinguished accomplishment and attribute is his beautiful wife, one of our favorite people, Elizabeth, who is a homemaker and homeschooler and super incredible herself in her formidability in these areas. And they have nine amazing, beautiful children. Would you please join me in warmly welcoming Nathan Schleter. I don't think a professor from Hillsdale ever been introduced like that, but... Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be with all of you here tonight. I'm so impressed by the apostolate here of Mass Impact, and I've been so blessed by Greg, and even from a distance by Walt and others. Tough act to follow here with Father Albert and Jesus, Mark the Evangelist. Greg kind of set me up for failure here tonight, but I'm going to do my best. I brought my wife along, as you can see, Elizabeth, and she is my... uh, Hotline when I run into trouble, I get to make my phone call and uh, go call for help from her. And um, so hopefully she she can help out this evening. I'm hitting my timer here on my uh, phone so you'll know that I will not go longer than 45 minutes. That's what Greg told me was the time. So I hope that doesn't scare you. Uh, but I set that at 45 minutes, and the clock is running, and then we can do Q&A. The way this talk began was the Statesmanship Academy. Greg and I had been just discussing, uh, as Greg mentioned, about our shared concern about the state of citizenship in America, the state of our country. And 
we began discussing an idea for forming a statesmanship school, especially for high school kids, an online school, which would be kind of a crash course in various dimensions of citizenship, equipping young people to go out into the culture and defend truth, goodness, and beauty in a principled way. And we've not gotten super far with that, but we thought that this talk would be on that. Uh, but as I said, we didn't get that far. We haven't gotten that far. Greg went and got sick. By the way, this is the first time I've seen Greg uh, since his illness, and it is great to see him back and healthy if you, you didn't know. So um, praise God for that. So I've got a handout here that I'm going to follow. And the, the you'll notice that the handout has a title. Uh, America's Crisis of Citizenship, Five Principles. And the structure is that I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go through five principles. I'm going to read the principle, and then there's a quote that I've selected, which I will read, and then I will elaborate on that principle, and then I will identify a crisis, which I think is opposed to that principle, and then I will identify a challenge. And I've not given this talk before, so with me. I don't know how it's going to go. Uh, but first, let me tell you that uh, maybe some of you are super energized by some of the really uh, pressing issues of our time right now. Some of you may be exhausted by them. Uh, where to begin? Afghanistan pullout, immigration crisis, inflation, transgender ideology, uh, just go down the line, uh, COVID shutdowns. It's overwhelming. There's so much there. And so for those of you who are exhausted by that, those conversations, um, you'll be relieved that I'm not, going to, I'm not going to talk about any of them in my talk. And it's not because I'm not deeply concerned about them. It's because I want to get at some background issues behind those things. Those of you who really want to talk about those issues, however, I'm all game for it during the question and answer part after the talk. Happy to bring all of those issues in and have a conversation about them. But the point here is to get us to kind of hit the pause button on the, on the sort of heightened anxiety we have about the state of things right now to back off of that a little bit and think a little think about these things in a, a more calm way so my, my main goal here uh, is really to think about politics help us think about politics in a way that is very realistic how do we go out and make a difference but is also high-minded that's the short of it. You'll notice a quote at the top of the paper here, the handout. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? Question mark. This is from the Federalist Papers. If you don't know, these were a series of newspaper articles written in the uh, in, in about 1787 by James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay. Federalist 51 was probably written by James Madison, and they've become kind of a definitive commentary in the meaning of the U.S. Constitution. They're incredibly rich, and I recommend them, but I thought this was a good line to begin because 
politics is kind of a focal point for understanding human nature and all of its richness and complexity. And by the end of this talk, I think you'll appreciate that quote better. Principle number one, citizenship is a form of friendship. This quote is from Aristotle, if you don't know who Aristotle is. He's an ancient philosopher, fourth century. He was a student of Plato. Plato was a student of Socrates. Aristotle, probably the most influential ancient philosopher, uh, especially on St. Thomas Aquinas. And I have several quotes from Aristotle in this handout. So this is from a book on ethics by Aristotle. And friendship seems to hold cities together. And lawmakers seem to take it more strictly, seriously than justice. For like-mindedness seems to be something similar to friendship, and they aim at this most of all and banish faction most of all for being hostile to it. And when people are friends, there is no need of justice. It's a nice line. But when they are just, there is still need of friendship. And among things that are just, what inclines towards friendship seems to be most just of all. So the question is, you know, what does it mean to be a citizen? It's a difficult question when you think about it. What does it mean to be a citizen? And Aristotle thinks about citizenship as a, a form of friendship. But what form of friendship? What kind of friendship is it exactly? And there are various models you can think about. One very popular model of citizenship is what is the contract model. I'm a member of a city only if I consent to be a part of it. If I make an agreement to be a part of it, then I'm a member of it. But if I don't consent or agree to be part of it, I'm not a member of it. And so membership in that way is kind of like being having shares in a corporation. Like maybe I'll invest in the corporation, maybe I won't. People invest, they can be part or you can check out. But I don't think that's an accurate description of citizenship. I don't know about you, but I would never die for a corporation. I would invest money, maybe I'd pull money out, but I don't feel any deep moral obligations of the corporations that I would invest in. I'm grateful to them, but I don't have a deep loyalty to them. But I would hope, if called to it, I would be willing to give my last full measure of devotion to my country. So my country has to be something deeper and more important than a corporation. Second model is what I call the high school civics class model. We all, some of you at least, will remember taking civics class in high school maybe, freshman year, sophomore year, and all the focus was on learning the facts of the institutions, and then all the pressure was just, was just go vote. Everyone just go vote. You, uh, you got to go out and vote. And they showed you how to fill out the card, to register to vote, and then you'd go vote. And in my view, some of those things are important, but citizenship seems to involve a lot more than simply knowing the facts about your country and going out to vote. There's a third model, which we'll just call the classical model. And the classical model is pretty rich. The classical model says that 
membership in the political society in, in the city is, is one of the highest and most important memberships we can have. It is more important than the family. It's more important than other than business associations. It's the deepest and richest form of community. This is how the Greeks and Romans thought about their citizenship. And there are great and heroic stories about these citizens. There's a story of the man who is captured by the Persians as they're as they're coming to invade Greece, and that they capture this Spartan soldier, and he says, "Bring me before the king of Persia." And so they do, and there are these two pillars with flames in them, and alongside the throne of the king, and this Spartan goes and he thrusts his hand into the fire. And it starts to sizzle and burn, and the smoke is coming off his hand. And everyone's looking at him. He says, do you see this, O king? If you go to Sparta, there are thousands like me waiting for you. And the Persian king thinks, oh no. Like, this is not going to be easy to overcome these people. And in fact, the Spartans were great self-sacrificing heroes, along with the Athenians in those wars. So that classical model of of a very high and involved view of citizenship. But I think you're here believing that we are citizens of the kingdom of God, a higher kingdom, a more important kingdom, so that our city can't be our highest form of citizenship. And I think many of us think our involvement in our families, in some sense, is a higher form of citizenship. And so this leads to a fourth model, which we can call the classical liberal model, for lack of a better term, right now. And in the classical liberal model, citizens are more than just investors in a corporation, but they're a little less than the kind of deep involvement that you find in the classical model. Citizens have to acknowledge one another as neighbors. They have to, uh, they have to be ready to associate with one another, to, to fulfill certain obligations, to be willing, if called to it, to defend one another, but we don't have to be the deepest friends. It's a form of citizenship that's not like a, being a member of a tribe or being a member of a church, but it's a very important form of membership. And this form of membership, by the way, is affirmed by the Catholic Church and the Catechism of the Catholic Church when it describes citizenship and the, and the moral obligation of solidarity. So we've got to think about citizens in, 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 in America especially, how do we become neighbors? We don't have to be best buddies with every other citizen in America, but how do we think about a basic form of friendship? And this leads, in some sense, to the crisis in America. I've, I have the word polarization here. I'm sorry, I know it's a bit of a cliche. Everyone talks about the polarization in America, but I'm sorry, cliches are cliches because they're usually true. And I do think that the, civil friend, the civic friendship in America is deeply frayed right now. And I see many of our political leaders doubling down on it. Um, I, I read in the newspaper yesterday that this Senate candidate, the leading Senate candidate in Ohio to replace Rob Portman, was quoted as saying, now is a time for fighting, not civility. And I thought, why are those being contrasted? Why not fighting with civility? Why, why, why is the alternative to either fight 
or be civil. I think because the idea here is that somehow civility means being squishy and soft and unprincipled, but civility means being a, a, a firm citizen. It doesn't mean being squishy and soft. And one of the points that I want to highlight here is civility is the root of civic friendship. And so the challenge here is to not think about politics like war. The Prussian general Clausewitz famously said, war is just politics by another means. And, and you could, some people reverse that. Politics is just war by another means. And if we think about politics like war, where we have friends and enemies, what we will see is a real war if we go down that road far enough. So the challenge here, how do we fight for justice without harming civic friendship? I'm just gonna leave that question on the table right now. Move to principle two. The most important thing to know about politics is that politics is not the most important thing. I heard that somewhere and I can't find it anywhere. I did, a, I, did, I did a Google search all over Google for 45 minutes the other day trying to find who said that because someone deserves to be credited for that. The quote again is from Aristotle. It is absurd for anyone to believe that politics or practical judgment is the most serious kind of knowledge if a human being is not the highest thing in the cosmos. The activity of the person engaged in politics is also unleisured and aims at some ends that are not chosen for their own sake. So here's the thing, political life matters. We need political life. We are made to be political animals. It's really important for us. There are all kinds of goods that political life provides us. A system of law, of institutions, defense, roads, all kinds of things that make our lives better. But political life is not an end in itself. There are so many other things besides politics that, that are, are the most important things or should be the most important things for us. Things like our families, like art, like beauty, like music, whatever those, like faith and worship, obviously. These are the things that constitute the meaning and richness of our lives. So how do we take politics seriously, but not too seriously, is the challenge. Um, so when you, again, if you look at Catholic social teaching, you can look up the, how the catechism describes the common good of politics. And the way it describes the common good is a set of conditions that helps the rest, of, helps us do the other things that are most important to us. Politics is not about doing the most important things. It's about protecting the conditions that allow us to spend time with our families, to teach our children, to, to, to worship together, to do those other things that we're made to do. And the church further defines this principle of subsidiarity, which is a rule this is, I, I've got quotes on these. If, I've got the sections of the catechism here. If you want them after the lecture, I can give them to you. But the principle of su subsidiarity puts strict limits on, on political authority. It says, it says, no government should interfere in and displace lower levels of authority, but should always merely assist them and help them to do their work well. That's the basic idea of subsidiarity. So, 
Where's the crisis here? I think this is uh, an interesting one. The, the crisis I have here is politicization. Say that word fast. Politicization uh, of society. I think we've seen an invasion of politics into the domain of our private lives in the last, it's been going on for a while, but I think it's become heightened. On the left, just gonna use this loosely, I think we see this manifested in two ways. Number one, I think the left tends to have an overconfidence that government can solve every social problem through some kind of rational planning. They think that politics is like a technical problem and you just put all the smart experts in charge and you let them manage the whole thing and so that's, this leads to a displacing of all the uh, ways in which citizens in their own ways problem solve and adapt and do things and so that rational planning has caused I think an, an, uh, an unreasonable increase in politicizing our culture. A second element that I think is on the side of the left is more recently this idea that uh, all inequalities are really the result of unjust power relations. And so what we have to, so on the left, to some degree, the belief is everything is politics and politics is just about power. And so what we have to do is unmask, as they say, all the oppressive power relations that exist within the social order and displace them and make, and, and ensure that everything is equal. And in a way, when you think that through, that's kind of a frightening idea. Uh, if, if that idea were to be fully um, implemented, think what it would mean. It would mean the dissolution of the family. It would mean the uh, absorption of business and everything else into government management. But so I think that is there. But I think on the right also, we have allowed politicization to invade our lives in our attitudes. And I think there, there are lots of ways you can see this. They're a little more subtle than what you would see on the left. But on the right, I see it in, I guess I'd say, two different ways that are related to each other. On the one hand, I think you've got a kind of deep um, cynicism about American political life. Uh, it is, pol politics is just corrupt and evil and ugly and we've lost everything and so what we should do is just retreat you know entirely from political life but in a way that's allowing politics to kind of control thinking about politics is sort of controlling your attitude and i think by the way that that attitude is often paired with what I think another danger is on the right, which is a, a, a naive idealism, an expectation that politics has to be pure, it has to be perfect, and I'm so cynical about this political life because I see all kinds of compromises being made, and I see politicians that are not living in principled ways and promoting the common good, and so the, so the cynicism can be reflected also, I think, in maybe a willingness to allow for behaviors 
and attitudes that we would never tolerate in our friends or in our children, uh, ways of acting and speaking that we think you need to just do these things to win because that's what they're doing. And we're anxious about what we see being threatened, understandably. But I, I think that among a lot of friends I have, and I'm not placing any of you in this category, but I have a lot of friends who, who are deeply anxious, they have, they have deep anxiety, and their inner peace has been severely disrupted, and they spend hours surfing the internet, reading articles about this issue and that issue and this person and that person. And when you're with them, that's all they're talking about is how bad things are. And it's fed a loop in their mind where their inner peace has been lost. And I, and I, I fear for that among Christian, American Christians. Either a full retreat from politics or a kind of absorption in political things. And I think that the challenge for us then is to figure out a way as I said just a moment ago, figured a way to take politics seriously, but not too seriously. Again, a challenge we can talk about more later. Principle three, politics requires logos. It's just a Greek word for reason. Reason is the very stuff of political life. Here's Aristotle again. Man alone among the animals has reason for it is peculiar to man as compared to the other animals that he alone has a perception of the good and the bad and just and unjust and partnership in these things is what makes a household in a city. So that's what Aristotle tells us. To be political is to engage with fellow citizens who may or may not agree with you and debate and deliberate about what the common good requires. And that means debating about justice. So if you don't believe in reason, you cannot have political life. If you don't have citizens who believe that there's a natural moral order, that there's a truth out there that you're trying to discover, then you cannot have political life. If you don't believe that, there, that you can arrive at some truth, then political life just becomes a hypocritical uh, cover for self-interested people to promote whatever they want to promote. But if reason is the stuff of politics, and I think it is, it's very important to have a correct understanding about what reason can do and what reason cannot do. And the point I want to make right now is that reason, like political life itself, is fragile. We do not just come out of the womb uh, enunciating Aristotelian syllogisms, making logical arguments, establishing premises and defending them. We can't even talk. The achievement of free political life is a rare and fragile thing, and the achievement of the reason required to support that, that life is a fragile thing. So here I'm going to get to the, I'm going to say a little more on this one about, about the crisis opposed to this particular principle. And it's a, it's a twofold crisis. I call it ideology here, and I'll say why in just a moment. But I think there are two opposed problems here. One of them is an underconfidence in reason. I think in our country, a lot of people are just anxious 
about reason's ability to know the truth. Why? Look at the arguments. You all have these. I'm sure you have family members and friends from college, high school, and they have, and, and your, your deep disagreement on marriage, on abortion, on tax policy, on candidates, and it's exhausting, and you feel like you're arguing till you're blue in the face, and you can't go anywhere, and boy, if we can't agree on these foundational moral issues, just maybe there's no truth. Because if truth was true, then supposedly it would be easy for people to know it and everyone would agree about it. When's the last time you saw a civil war break out over a mathematical equation? Everyone knows that. No one fights about that. But when it comes to these moral issues, people are at each other's throats. Maybe those things aren't true. Now, I want to say right now that, that this expectation that the truth about reality should be obvious and should elicit from us agreement is not realistic. Truth has never worked that way. Just look at the history of science, of astronomy, from Ptolemaic to Newtonian to Einsteinian physics to chemistry. I mean, even in like, if you take science to be the gold standard of knowledge, even mathematics, I mean, if you know the history of Euclidean geometry and the fifth postulate that people spent 1,500 years trying to prove Euclid's fifth postulate and no one could do it, and then a 19th century mathematician said, well, uh, maybe it's not true that two parallel lines extending in, in, in infinity will never meet. Maybe it's not true. And so he plays with the alternative, and that becomes the foundation for the discovery of... Uh, of quantum mechanics, of, of Einstein's theory of relativity. So, so it turns out that the truth is often difficult to get at. It takes work and tradition and effort. And just because people disagree doesn't mean it's there. Just because uh, Ptolemy was wrong doesn't mean that therefore Newton's probably wrong too. Who, who knows who's right because they're disagreeing. We get to that truth. We can approximate. There's no need to lose confidence in your knowledge of the truth. But I think there is a need to have a little bit more humility about your expectations, about how obvious things ought to be when you arrive at them. And this gets to my second point. If the first one is this underconfidence, you know, my message is, no, have confidence that truth can be known. But the second error is overconfidence in what reason can know. And this kind of follows from what I just said, that the things we know about the world aren't usually just obvious, nor can we simply line up a clear, logical, deductive proof to make them true. Most of the things we know, it seems to me, are subject to all kinds of, uh, of different conditions that are questionable. There are premises people are bringing in that, uh, that have not been tested, that could theoretically be true. This is not true for everything, but for a lot of things. And it's part of a mark, it seems to me, of having a right understanding of reason is knowing those areas in which uh, the thing that you are convicted about doesn't have the perfect gold standard logical support. 
There has been some great work done on this. I'm gonna mention two of my, I suppose my, my, the most influential people on me for thinking about reason. One of them is a, a Catholic saint, St. John Henry Newman wrote beautifully some amazing works, especially his Oxford lectures. He did 15 lecture, uh, sermons at Oxford University. And it's one of his main points uh, in his defense of the faith is to show why we can believe in faith without having clear logical arguments to prove the faith. And Newman says, none of us have the faith that way. I can't prove Jesus rose from the dead. I can't prove Jesus was God. I can't give a scientific argument for that. But you know what? I have good reasons to believe it. Because we, Newman points out, we believe, we believe a lot of things. We couldn't, get, we couldn't live without believing a lot of things that we can't prove. And he does some great arguments on this. Anticipates some later people. The second person that I, uh, I've learned a lot from, even though I don't agree with him the way I do with uh, St. John Henry Newman, is this guy, Jonathan Haidt, who's a cognitive behavioral psychologist at Columbia University, wrote a magnificent book called The Righteous Mind in, in uh, 2012. And I highly recommend it. Uh, Haidt basically goes through all of the way, all of the kind of studies in psychology which show the deep, what he calls confirmation biases that are kind of hardwired into our nature that people just intuitively are hardwired. We're made this way. He, he says, our, our reason is often like a rider on an elephant. And it, as soon as we come into contact with something, we judge it. And that's our elephant. It's a big, heavy animal, and it leans in. It makes a judgment. And most of the time, uh, what happens when we have a discussion is the guy on the elephant is just kind of defending where his elephant's going. Because it's very hard to re-steer that elephant. We all think that when we're having uh, arguments with each other, we're just on neutral territory given the evidence, but really what most of us are doing is just being a press secretary for, you know, for the elephant that's leaned. And so Haidt gives all kinds of striking studies that kind of uh, illuminate how bad we are at reasoning. It's really eye-opening. Oh, he gives examples where I myself was making judgments along the way, and then he would come around and say, well, uh, but this is the truth of the matter. And I think, oh my God, how did I get there from where he started this? And I saw I myself am prone to this. We're all prone to this. So I think we need to be aware of this in ourselves. So, uh, so now getting to the crisis, which is ideology. Ideology is a false form of reasoning. I think it's pervasive. It's a form of reasoning which is not just having ideas. I know people use that language, ideology, like what's your philosophy of life? What's your ideology? But in, a, in its precise sense, an ideology is taking some simplified idea and thinking that you can use that to explain all of reality and then to think that anyone who disagrees with you is either an idiot or is evil. And we've got three very influential ideologies in the West. The first one began with Karl Marx. Economic interests explain all of history, and if you don't agree with me, you're an idiot or evil. Look where Marxism took us. Marx thought he was perfectly rational. It was called the science. Everyone believed, like this is a science of dialectical materialism, ideology. Sigmund Freud, 
Everything's about the id, sexual desire. Every, every, you can explain all human behavior through this, and you know what? We just have to repress that id or sexual desire in order to have civilization, but it's always there kind of howling and wanting to get out. And wouldn't it be great if we could let that id out without hurting people? And what do you get out of that? The sexual revolution, ultimately. Ideology doing its damage. Third example, Friedrich Nietzsche, a 19th century German philosopher. Everything is will to power. Reason is just a mask for power. And I think you see that today, and everyone's talking about critical race theory, but I think Nietzsche's philosophy is the underlying premise behind critical race theory. Critical race theory is not really just about race. The basic idea is every argument is really so it's just a power play to promote your own self-interest. So three ideologies, and I think it's very important for us to avoid, to be very careful that we're not being ideologues in, in ways that we think are, well, this is the true ideology. I think the reality is that reality is deeply complex and multifaceted, and we've got to be open to the glory and beauty and richness and mystery of the world around us. So the challenge. How do we train ourselves and our children to be better reasoners? Okay, I've, I've got 11 minutes here. Political principle, uh, principle four, political life is rooted in muthos. I just said reason, muthos refers to myth. Seems like those are intention. How can political life be both reason and myth? I'm not going to read this paragraph because it's too long and I've only got 10 minutes left. But it's a paragraph written by a man named Edmund Burke, who was an 18th century English politician. And he wrote this statement in opposition to the French Revolution, to, to what he saw happening just after the French Revolution. And the French Revolution, if you don't know, was an attempt to make reason alone the governing principle of the regime. Tradition was suspect, religion was suspect, anything mytho mythological was suspect. We're gonna found this regime on reason alone. And Burke wrote this beautiful document called Reflections of the Revolution in France. And what he said in there is, if you go down this line, the only end it can result in is violence. And sure enough, three years later, the streets, the, the guillotine is invented and the streets are running with blood. The French Revolution is an horrific, an eye-opening event in human history. You should study it. Just read Dickens's great novel, A Tale of Two Cities. It's chilling, but read histories of it because it can happen to us. Don't think this can't happen to us. It can happen anywhere in the world. Human nature is what it is. I don't want to be cynical here, but the butcheries, the, the uh, warfare, the violence in the world, we're not immune from it. So what Burke does is reminds us that the deepest and richest part of our lives are, are in, the, in, the, in the way of stories. We are constituted by the stories. If I ask you who you are, uh, you might give me your name, but that doesn't tell me. I don't know who you are. I was talking to Father Albert. It's like, oh, I'm from Northeast Ohio. Oh, I went to Cleveland Art Institute. Like, he's telling me his story. And as he's telling me his story, I'm starting to learn who Father Albert is. 
We, we know things through story. He doesn't give me a logical argument for who Father Albert is. Father Albert is like ECM three times two. There's no mathematical formula for people. So, so, so the, cha- the crisis is rationalization, rationalism, thinking that reason alone is the only measure of knowing reality. And the challenge is to develop a true moral imagination to know how to tell stories the right way. I'm a big believer on this. I could talk about this a long time because I think it's really at the root of everything else. It's uh, how we tell our stories, what stories we tell our children and form them are the deepest things we will do for them. Principle number five, rule number five, I guess. Political life requires ethos. It's a Greek word for character. It's related to virtue. I've got the quote from the Federalist Papers. They're in there once again. First line, the aim of every political constitution is or ought to be first to obtain for rulers men who possess most wisdom to discern and most virtue to pursue the common good of the society. And the next place to take the most effectual precautions for keeping them virtuous, whilst they continue to hold their public trust. So you gotta have virtue to have a free, decent government. It has to be there. I I wanna highlight just three virtues that I think are in, uh, that are very important for political life and are threatened today. The first one is piety. If you read St. Thomas Aquinas on piety, he describes piety as a virtue of justice. It's a virtue that requires us to, to pay back our debts to those who have given to us in ways we could never pay them back. Like their, their gift to us is so grand and great that we need to have gratitude and humility before that debt and to serve it as best we can. Obviously God, right? Piety obviously extends to God. Who can pay back God for what he gave us? But we better be grateful we better always have that in mind and act that way. But St. Thomas says this virtue is always inc- also incredibly important for your parents, right, and your country. He says most important, parents, country, God. That's amazing. You know, Th- Thomas Aquinas is writing that in the 14th century. Why our country? Do I need to tell you, right? Look at the gifts we, I I wake up every morning and I read the newspaper and I think, I know America's not perfect, but I am so grateful to be in this country. I know it's messed up. It's got so many problems. I'm anxious about all the same things you are, I guarantee it, but I'm still grateful to be here. And that gratitude puts an obligation on me to not just abandon my country and kind of criticize it from this detached position, but to be in it trying to bring out the good. Second virtue that I want to highlight is prudence. Prudence is a virtue. Some people think about prudence as some kind of um, uh, compromise in order to secure your comfort and security. Like they think about prudence as like, like squishy. But for Aristotle and Aquinas, prudence was the most important of the moral virtues because what prudence does is it, it helps us hone in on the target of the good that's in front of us. 
That's a prudent step. He says it's like directing an arrow, not to all the goods out there that I could possibly have, that I could imagine. It's like, I got a complex situation. Prudence helped me out. And it goes like an arrow right to the good you can get. And you know what? Sometimes that good, usually that good's not the perfect good. It's the achievable good. But to, but to some people, it's very easy for prudence to look like squishiness. Aristotle makes the same point about courage. He says, one vice opposed to courage is rashness. Like think about someone who's really just, I'm looking at Walt for some reason, I don't know. He looks like a brother of mine. I mean, we were rash. Like it was kind of like who could be stupider in high school? Who could take the bigger risk? It's like that dumb and dumber thing. And it was, it was risk taking that boys were doing, but for Aristotle, that's not courage, that's just being rash and stupid. And the rash person can make the truly courageous person look like a coward. You might remember the courageous person would be saying, that's stupid, that's not courageous, that's just dumb. And prudence often looks that way too. To people who don't have prudence, it can look like they're so pure and principled that the prudent person can look like they're squishy. So one thing I think we deeply need to do is figure, is to learn how to focus our attention on getting achievable goods. And one sub point on this, involved in prudence, I got three minutes here, I'm doing well. Uh, one uh, very important element of prudence is seeing that imperfect justice is sometimes a necessary good. Another way to put this is forms matter. Legal forms matter. Institutional forms matter. I think that one of the great strategies of the devil, one of the things he loves is to harness our anger at injustice, take it and use it to destroy the very small goods that were remaining that we might have used to resist the devil further. A great example of this is in Robert Bolt's play, A Man for All Seasons. If you've never seen it, it's magnificent. But in, there's a particular scene where uh, Thomas More's son-in-law, Roper, who's a new convert, you know how new converts are, they're really enthusiastic and they have no prudence whatsoever. They're, it's beautiful, they feed the church in so many ways, but you're, you know, if you're a cradle Catholic, you're like, um, well, Roper's, Roper's telling Moore, like, go arrest that guy. Uh, Moore says, well, he hasn't done anything wrong yet. And Roper says, well, he's a bad guy. I know he's a bad guy. And Thomas Moore, who's the chief law enforcement officer for England, says, uh, you know, I, I arrest him without the law. And Roper says, I'd cut, I'd cut down every law in England to go after the devil. And here's Moore's reply. Oh, you'd cut every law down in England to get at the devil. Who wouldn't? But when the last law was down and the devil turned around, where would you hide, Roper? The law's all being flat. He'd turn around and smile, thank you. This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast. Man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, Roper, like Thomas More knew his son-in-law, do you really think you could stand upright? Yes, I'd give the devil the benefit of the law for my own safety's sake. That's Thomas, St. Thomas More. So 
I think we're tempted in so many, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote this, probably the greatest work ever in America. When he said is Americans are so Protestant, they're so suspicious of forms. They think there's like a, a, po a pope everywhere, like that incense and bells and all that stuff is just a ruse to fool us, these superstitions. And so the, the, so the American spirit is kind of hostile to forms. We want to see things for ourselves. But Tocqueville said that spirit, if it goes unchecked, like wanting to not be ruled by anything else, to suspect it all, to see things for us, in the end, it's going to level every single... Every single cushion and check in our country that prevents us from being dominated by the government. Tocqueville said, this is paving the way for despotism. So America's, Americans need to learn how to love forms and to see that they're not perfect. A great movie on this, and then I'll just make the last point. If you've seen 12 Angry Men, what a great movie. These guys are, watch it, go back and watch it. If you've never watched it, watch it. It's only an hour, a little over an hour long. The jury, you got the 12 men in the jury room and the form of the jury requires them to reach a consensus. And the, the whole movie's like in that room. And it's a drama in which the requirement that they stay there causes their, re frees up their reasoning. Initially, their prejudices are all there. They're, uh, some are just ready to convict this person or the crime and move on, get to the baseball game, but they can't because you've got the form of the jury that has to deliberate. And it goes through the drama, through the form that gets to the just result at the end. That's what forms help. They help us. They help our reason. They're not perfect, but we've got to accept that imperfection because we're imperfect creatures. That's why we have them. The last virtue I had here, um, what do I have? Oh, persuasion, okay. That's not really a virtue, but I wanted to throw it in there anyhow. Uh, persuasion, that, that relates to the virtue, of the, the art of rhetoric. There's another one. You asked your typical American, what is rhetoric? And they'd probably say, people lying to you to get what they want, right? Like people that don't tell the truth, that's what rhetoric is. But for Aristotle and Aquinas, for, for all the medieval thinkers, rhetoric was a liberal art. Like everyone was required to study the art of persuasion. Wow. The art of persuasion. Like, why don't we just make logical arguments? No, you got to persuade. You know what the word persuasion means? Literally, it means persuasio, to make sweet, to make something sweet. Abraham Lincoln once said, you catch more flies with a drop of honey than with a, with a bucket of gall. Think of how much gall there is out there. I don't know how many arguments you have with people which are like gall. I've had, I have a lot of them, okay? So I always work on this. But think about what a little bit of honey does. Just a drop of honey put into an argument or a conversation to bring someone. Are we trying to win people over that disagree with us? How far are we willing to go towards them to bring them to the truth? How, how much are we willing to befriend them? How much are we willing to be aware that it's not just dominating with the argument? In my experience, that never works. It just doesn't ever work. It, and this is what Hay points out as well. The change happens where? In friendship, in telling stories, in reaching the heart. 
I'm not saying abandon arguments altogether. They have their place, but these other things have to be there as well. So I guess in conclusion, um, citizenship, it's a complex and very difficult thing. It doesn't just happen naturally. And we have a crisis in this country of citizenship education, I think. I think we've just massively failed to educate ourselves and our children in the right way that they can be responsible citizens and help promote the common good. There's a lot of work to be done, and I'll do my part, and I'll, I'll trust the rest to God. So uh, thank you for being so patient. Nathan, very deeply grateful for you. In your mind, I imagine you're visualizing a mighty oak and you've condensed it and given us an acorn. We realize we're not gonna unpack that tonight, but, but I do think and I'm grateful that we've captured this by audio because I think implications of this are meant to be explored and reflected upon. You are listening to Ignite Radio Live, a very special episode airing the recent program, Belief in Beverages Night, featuring Professor Nathan Schleter from Hillsdale. As a commercial, we do invite you to join us on the third Thursday's tremendous opportunities for parents and grandparents who want to build the kingdom to more fully discover how we do this and to be engaged in doing it. Find out more at massimpact.us forward slash BNB. Of course, we encourage you to check out presentsforchristmas.com three consecutive Wednesdays at Holy Trinity Parish. Very excited about that. Check that out at presentsforchristmas.com, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E-F-O-R, christmas.com. And finally, we do invite you to please consider being one of our new monthly mission partners in advancing the kingdom. We're parents and grandparents eager to see our children and future generations know and live for Jesus in the fullness of our Catholic faith. And find out more about that at massimpact.us forward slash partner. God bless you.